My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Now, to start off, I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Macmillan LLP, one of Canada's leading business law firms. Here at Capitalist Exploits, we use Macmillan uh, for everything we need in Canada. My lawyer is a gentleman named Roland Hurst. I've had a great experience working with him, and he's made my job much, much easier. So if you're looking for a business law firm within Canada, they also have offices in Hong Kong, please check out Macmillan. I can't recommend them more highly. Okay, now today I had the chance to sit down and chat with Anthony Malowski, the CEO, founder, and chairman of a company you may have heard of called Cobalt 27. In addition to that, Anthony is the managing director of Pala Investments. This is an investment fund based out of Switzerland, uh, primarily focused on the metal and mining industry. We talk about Anthony's background as a lawyer and how it led him into investing and particularly into the metals and mining space. We talk about how he looks at investments, how he uses these big, uh, really global macro themes, uh, and then narrows in on the best way to get exposure to changes that he sees going on in the world today. We talk about why he started Cobalt 27 and what he believes for the future of that and really just a big look at how he sees the world and how he believes uh, investors can make better decisions to get exposure to all the changes that are going on in society today. I had a really good time talking to him. He's very insightful, uh, very knowledgeable, and this podcast is going to add a lot of value to any investor out there, particularly those interested in the metals and mining space. So, Without further ado, let me please introduce Anthony Malowski, CEO of Cobalt 27. Anthony, welcome to the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me. Good. So we got introduced through a mutual colleague, and that's what really put me on to Pallet Investments and Cobalt 27 and, and what you're doing today. But before we start, I wanted to just, by way of introduction, do a little intro about what I've learned about you so far. So you are a lawyer by training. Uh, it sounds like you've done, spent a lot of your career, though, completing transactions and investments in emerging markets all over Central Europe, Russia, Africa. Um, you are now the managing director of Pallet Investments, which is a mining-focused fund based out of Switzerland. And probably most of our le- readers will be most familiar with your newest venture, which is Cobalt 27. Um, so I really want to talk about all those things today and, and dig into everything. But um, first, I wanted to ask you a question. So digging through your bios on, on the websites and whatnot, I noticed an underlying theme. And, and that was a fascination, or what I see as a fascination with Russia. And, you know, you did yeah, it undergraduate degree in, in Russian history. And I, I just wanted to know what led you to Russia and where did, where did that interest come from? Yeah, you know, it's kind of hard to sort of pinpoint any particular you know, moment or, or thing. But, you know, I was sort of always fascinated with um, Russian literature and history. And, you know, growing up, I, I grew up in the Northwest and you know, spent my childhood fishing and hunting. And in the eastern part of Russia is Kamchatka, which is this like vast wilderness area, you know, something like going to Alaska, but even a hundred years before that, kind of the same mm-hmm. in terms of remoteness. And and so, you know, I was always interested in it. And uh, you know, when I went to university I studied Russian language and history and then later did a master's degree and it was a Fulbright school in Russia. And so uh, while I didn't really know it at the time, that interest in Russia was ultimately what landed me in the resource space. Okay, so you started at, uh, if I remember correctly, it's Brigham Young University, right? In, is that in Salt Lake City? 
Yeah, no, it's in Utah. It's it's BYU, uh, and I studied history, Russian history there, and, and Russian language. So, what brought you down to Utah from the uh, from the Northeast? Well, I'm from Washington State, so Sorry, the Northwest. Uh, close. Yeah. yeah, Northwest. No, it's you know it's only probably a ten hour drive. Also, also I played American football, and um, my freshman year in particular. I really wanted to play football and I had an opportunity to play football at BYU. And so, you know, in addition to being um, relatively close to home and inexpensive, you know, it also provided me with the opportunity to play American football. Okay. All right. And so you played your entire degree there? No, just, just my first year. Uh, I only played for one year. Uh, I wasn't, you know, wasn't, wasn't fast enough, big enough, whatever it was. You know what? Yeah, yeah. I could, I could see, you know, everyone's going professional at something, and, and for me, it wasn't football. So, you know, it was time to move on, but but it was still a great experience. Okay, and so you sort of transitioned your interest to Russian, and now were you? So you're obviously learning about uh, you know that part of the world, the history. Were you able to speak Russian by the time you completed your master's degree? Yeah, so, you know, I did my master's degree at the University of Washington. I did a joint JD and a just doctorate and a master's degree in international and Russian studies. And, um, you know, I took Russian all the way through. But along the way, I also went to Ukraine and Russia multiple times. You know, as a student, I was a Fulbright scholar. And I studied at a Russian university for a year and did an LLM in finance, uh, you know, at, at Moscow State University. So, you're in those years between say, the first first year of my undergraduate, my freshman year, um, to the end of graduate school. You know, I had spent a pretty material amount of time in Russia and Ukraine in the former Soviet Union. Okay. Now, can I actually ask you, what is a Fulbright scholar? I know very roughly, but you know, this is something I've seen on people's bios in the past, and I've read about. What do, what does that actually mean? So it's a it's a fellowship that is. It's a scholarship slash fellowship that's administered by the U.S. government. And, you know, depending on the year, they have a certain number of these scholarships. And oftentimes they're annotated for a certain region. So just by way of example, maybe there's two to Russia this year. I have no idea what the number is. And five to China and one to Ghana. I don't know the numbers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what happens is when you're an undergraduate or a graduate student, you um, fill out a pretty intensive paperwork uh, series, and then you have interviews, and, and your university actually nominates or endorses a handful of candidates. And then from there, from your university, you know, it's kind of pushed up into a national competition, where depending on how far you get, you ultimately have uh, an interview. And in the case of Russia, at the time, we had a language interview. And then, you know, as part of this, you um, you have to kind of pitch what you're going to do in the country and what you're interested in. In particular, I was interested in privatization, um, you know, and, and the effects of privatization in the former Soviet Union. And so now I was at uh, one of the major universities in Russia uh, looking at finance and the system, which kind of uh, existed in, in a post in a post privatization world. And so it's quite a process from start to finish, not only in terms of paperwork, but in terms of interviews and preparing and getting through not only university, but then a national level and then selected ultimately. Yeah. So once you won that scholarship, obviously you went off to Russia and you, and you completed the work there. What, what, how did that differentiate from just doing, uh, you know, a year abroad or something similar to that? Well, at the time, I was actually a graduate student um, when I was a Fulbright scholar. I was, I was a, um, a student at the University of Washington in the, in the law school in the, in the master's program. And I think the big difference is, one, you've kind of gone through this process. And so, you know, at the other side of it, you usually have a host, a host institution or a host group of some sort. In my case, it was Moscow State University. And so you're kind of plugged into that school. Everything is paid for or almost everything is paid for. And I think that because of the nature of that process, uh, there's a certain amount of, I don't know if respect is the right word, but you know, when you get to wherever it is you're going, you know, you're getting assistance and help to kind of complete the project that you set out to do. And so I would just say that I think you looked at a little differently within the organization 
that it's hosting you because they're kind of aware of that process in order to get you there. Also, you know, because it's partially administered by the State Department, you get invited to a lot of embassy events and cultural events inside of the country, the opportunity to speak. And so you think you get a certain access that you don't get otherwise if you're just a student uh, in a given country. Right. Now, was it during that experience, um, and obviously also during your law degree and, and M- MD, that you started to see the potential of Russia and and you know the potential of investment and privatization and getting involved in these emerging markets in both Russia and the former Soviet Union. Yeah, I think I think the like you know, looking at privatization and thinking about not only Russia but honestly China at the time. You know, it was unclear what path China was going to take in terms of privatization and they went a different path and I think frankly they went a better path but that's, that's a side note but you know in doing that and thinking about um, the aftermath of that privatization and and really potentially working with these companies and mind you this is 1998-99 it's been a while but but at the time you know working in those companies and bringing in um, different kinds of ideas because largely those companies that were privatized were Soviet um, Soviet-style-run companies. Uh, but mm-hmm. that, of course, wasn't true of, of companies that were founded and formed after the fall of the Soviet Union. So you know, there's a lot of potential to sort of uh, get in there and, and, and really grow these businesses within the country and change some best practices, but also expand them outside the country. Now, that is sort of the segue into the resource business for me because inside of Russia, if you think about what what is the key driver or one of the key drivers of that economy and it's it's oil right and it's and it's forestry and it's mm-hmm. the steel industry and it's diamonds and so by becoming interested in privatization and Russian industry and really more broadly you know Ukraine and other former Soviet Union countries uh, I ultimately became interested in natural resources and those types of businesses and so consequently when I was in Russia in one of those you know kind of moments I worked at Renaissance Capital which was the bank at the time in Russia. And, you know, all the deals we did were coal deals and, and oil deals and, and other types of natural resource deals. And that was really the thing. You know, my interest in Russia got me to Russia, but, but that, that interest is what kind of drove my um, career into the natural resource space. So did you, did you, when you started, did you spend time articling and go through the, the typical path of becoming a lawyer and getting called to the bar and be it some state or country? Or did you dive right into yeah, so, the investment stuff? Yeah, so, so I, um, so I, um, I, I passed the New York bar. I'm still a member of the New York bar, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I went through the interview process, and I was offered a job at Skadden Arps. And you know, Skadden Arps, I think even still today, has an office in Moscow. And you know, at the time, there were all these IPOs that, that were happening, in particular in London, but also in New York. Of of um, cause, you know time is passing here. Like you start in school and you go to graduate school, so years are passing. So so the nature of Russian business was transforming, and, and they were accessing capital markets in Europe and in, in North America. And um, so I took a job at Skadden, and, and I took a job in their Moscow office, and it was is pretty amazing because immediately, um, you know, I remember I worked on TGK thirteen, which was. Uh, an IPO of a Russian coal company, and and you know the list goes on. There was drill, drilling companies, oil drilling companies, and uh, you know a whole host of these companies. And so I passed the bar, immediately moved to Russia, and started working on mostly IPOs and M&A deals of Russian natural resource companies. Okay, and then so after. After spending some time uh, with the law firm Skadden Arp, you moved then to Renaissance. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was actually, you know, I kind of I was at Renaissance before Skadden, and then, um, and then, um, and then briefly after, and then from there. Um, so that's kind of a period of maybe two or three years, and then from there I moved to New York where I took a job working for a guy called James Passon at Firebird Management in New York, which is a hedge fund. So I, went, I left Russia to move back to New York and work at a hedge fund. 
I see. And I mean, the focus of both Renaissance and Firebird was emerging markets and commodities. Is that correct? Yeah. So, uh, well, Renaissance really covered all of the Russian space as an investment bank, but the nature of my work there was natural resources because I think that that was a lot of the business at the time, just because that was the nature of the Russian economy. You know, when, when I moved back to the States and started working at Firebird, I worked in the Firebird Global Master Fund. And, you know, I would say not all of those funds, but at the time, a majority of those funds were natural resources. Mm-hmm. And those resources were kind of spread around the globe. I mean, there was, you know, a florist bar in South Africa. Uh, there was, you know, oil in Kenya and Rwanda. And there was, um, you know, there was diamonds in Russia. You know, you know there was coal in Mongolia. That, you know, so, you know, I would say if if working at Skadden and Renaissance in Russia was kind of opening the door to the natural resources, you know, in James Passon, I think I really found a mentor who who really kind of helped me understand the capital market side of it, and and you know, this whole world of promoters and yep. and the venture side of it. And so I think. You know, in those early years at Scadden, I learned a lot about transactions and, you know, deal books and, and closing rooms and, and writing a prospectus and all those sorts of things. But I think in, in you know, Firebird, in particular in James, I mean, he was a great mentor, you know, he kind of understood or figured out how to have an investment thesis and how to do work around that investment thesis. And then also some stuff which is a lot softer, although kind of critical to the resource business, which is like... <laughs> You know, what is a promoter and how does the promote work and what is an investment bank in terms of like how it's supporting some of the capital raising and some of that that nuance that I don't think you can read anywhere and you just have to experience it somehow. Yeah. And, you know, I can speak from experience in my own career coming as an engineer from the technical side and then moving into the business side and the investment side of the industry. All these things I found to be so intimidating going in because it's so hard to learn anywhere else. I mean, like you said, you can't pick up a newspaper or a book and and learn how these things work. But once you're actually in it, and you sort of have someone to hold your hand and introduce you to people and explain how things work, it's, it's generally not that complicated, but it is very uh, opaque. It's not complicated, but I would say it's, it's important to have the relationships because, you know, in particular in, in the mining business, you know, so much of investment opportunity in the early in the early seed rounds, if that's what you want to call it. You know, so much of like the big assets, it comes to relationships. You know, whether it's knowing the business development guy at the big mining company, uh, whether it's uh, you know having the friend with the shell, it, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting industry because I feel like a lot of the industry is driven by uh, knowing other people and, and, and being well thought of in terms of being invited into whatever the thing is. And so I think, That's great. you know, wherever your seat is, because everyone has a different path, but wherever your seat is, you want to sit somewhere and with someone who can help facilitate those introductions over time. So when you're at Firebird, what, what kind of things are you looking at here? Are you looking at early stage exploration projects, getting in on the seed round, or are you looking at more development stage assets? What's the is there a thesis or is it sort of anything that can make value in the space? You know, so I mean, my observation on that time was it was largely thematically driven, a lot of the investments. And, you know, whether it was East African rift oil or whether, you know, it was a roll-up around floor spar, whether it was Mongolian, you know, Mongolia opening up, you know, there were these themes that drove investments. Right. And then... So these are more macro... Is and you're looking for the best way to get exposure. To them. I don't know that a theme is necessarily macro, but but um, you know it wasn't like currency kind of driven. That it wasn't that kind of a macro thing. It was very yeah. much focused on, um, you know, uh, in East in East Africa at the time. And you know, James James was well ahead of the trend on some of this stuff. You have to give that credit. You know, he uh, for instance had an amazing trade in uranium. You know, and so it's about it's about looking at a market a commodity or a situation and seeing it differently than everyone else. And I think that's to, to make the big score, to have a huge win. I think you have to have that kind of gift. And there's an element of luck as well with all things, but 
you know, when I look at Firebird and, you know, there were huge successes, oftentimes it was, you know, seeing that trend or that, that change ahead of, you know, wherever the market was. And in, in the case of oil in East Africa, you know, there was a massive boom there. And, and yeah. uh, there, there were examples of assets that, that, that uh, the firm sold and made, made huge money on. And I think that, that's all driven at the time, you know, James at the boss, that was driven by seeing the world a little bit differently and being ahead of even trend. Now, when you invest that way, you get it wrong sometimes and, and, and yep. you have to be able to live with that. But for the big or ones, sometimes you, you just know, get the timing wrong. Well, the timing wrong. Yeah, to, to, I agree with that. I agree with that. So, you know, you can get the trade right and the timing wrong. I mean, just look at the U.S. Uh, financial crisis. I mean, there were there were people eight years, ten years early, kind of warning of the impending doom. Or even yeah. look at uh, even look at China today. You know, people say, "Oh, the China is going to have a, a recession." Well, yeah, someday it will. <laughs> like you know, because all economies have that someday, but. It's like you have to time it right, and that's um, that's incredibly you know challenging. And some people are talented at it. So uh, I think one of the really interesting things about sitting in that seat was just a lot of our trades were were about having a, a you know variant perception on some some change that was happening in the world, in particular driven by resources, and and being ahead and, and putting that trade on. And and also by the way, you know, we'll talk about this later. It's not only seeing an opportunity. It's being able to capitalize on it. I'll give you an example, like helium. You know, I have no helium trade on today, but if you think about space exploration and the number of um, launches every year, it's growing exponentially. So helium is a major part of of um, that whole industry that's developing. Okay. I think the time is now. I think the time is now. Um, I think the timing is right. I can see clearly. I think that helium. Uh, with a few kind of nuances is going to be interesting. However, there's no real way to play it. So you could yeah. you could take the effort to go and create that vehicle or try and create the vehicle and maybe miss the timing. So you, know, you, you have to have not only the timing, not only the view, but you also need to have a way to execute that view. So it's a bunch of moving parts to kind of get it right. But when you get it right, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So... When you're working for James and, and you'd said he was a mentor of yours, how, you know, clearly he had an aptitude for this type of thinking. What would you, I'm very interested in, you know, what would set a guy like him apart than your average trader or even your average fund manager? You know, how did he approach these problems or how did he look at the world differently that made him able to see things uh, so far ahead that perhaps other people weren't able to? You know, I I think with great investors, um, and there's different styles of investing too, mind you, very different styles. And so we're talking about a particular type of investing, a particular style of investing, which I think I kind of model myself after as well now. You know, it has to suit you. You know, like, um, you know, if uh, if you're going to be a long distance runner, you probably shouldn't be 35 pounds overweight and five foot two. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Like, I think. Right. Yeah. I think it's the same. You know, I think I think for for instance for this for this sort of type of thematic investing, I think you probably have to be someone who's a bit passionate. Like look at Tom Kaplan. You know, you have to you have to fall in love with the story and you have to believe the story as well. And so I think you have to be uh, partially a salesperson. You know, because you have to believe it. If you don't believe it, no one else is going to believe it. And I think you know you have to be interested and engaged in the world and read a lot and and really you know kind of be a dynamic thinker in terms of multiple outcomes because you know with with any of these things like something always is going to go wrong you know so you just have to kind of uh you know have a few of these qualities and you have to be passionate about it you know i i don't know really anyone who is really good at what they do who doesn't really enjoy doing it there are people who can be pretty good at what they do but like go find the best go, go find the best person in the world at anything like I don't care what that thing is like whatever that particular thing is and I would suggest that they actually really enjoy that and, and have passion for it yeah I mean I agree with that totally because you can't compete with someone that's thinking about it all the time right like if you're thinking about your job eight hours a day you just can't compete with the guy that's thinking about it 18 hours a day who wakes up thinking about it who who reads it for fun on the weekends it's 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 impossible I would say and you know every good investor or good 
at anything person I know is like that. It's what they, it's, they are almost obnoxiously one track mind about it. And that's their total focus. Yeah. And, and so I, I, what I would just say is, you know, you don't, don't force a square peg into a round hole. You know, um, if, if someone is sitting there thinking, yeah, I want to do this or that, like, like ask yourself, like, can you think about that thing all day long, you know, every day? Like, do you want to think about that thing? Maybe it's a better question. Not can you, but do you want to? Because it, if, if not, then, you know, I'm not sure that's right. You know, to be clear, you know, you have to take some jobs that you don't want to take and you have to, to work some hours you don't want to work and you have to do right. projects you don't want to do. Like, that's not to say any of that's not the case, but you know, if, if, um, if you don't like blood, you probably shouldn't be a doctor. <laughs> you know, you should be a surgeon at least. Right. So I think yeah. there's an element of, of that. It's like, you know, if, if you can't be bothered to care about uh, what's going on in the world, like if you're not reading the New York times or wall street journal or financial times, whatever, whatever your paper of choice is, you know, if you're not, if you're not, um, following some stocks and, you know, thinking about, um, what you know rio's dividends are going to look like i mean if you don't if you don't care about that at all fundamentally don't care like why is it that, that you really want to go work in a fund you know so i uh, and there's different types of funds and, and you could think about different things but I, I do think that especially like as a student um if you didn't want to take a corporate finance class oh gosh why do i work in an investment bank so um i, I think that there's just a amount of common sense and oftentimes I find like people get misguided because they're chasing, chasing money. But what I would say is in every single industry I'm aware of, the person or people at the top of that industry are making a lot of money, right? So it doesn't matter if you're in apparel, if you're in technology, if, if you run the biggest uh, garbage uh, pickup you know, company in LA, I guarantee you're making a fortune. So it, money Sometimes, you know, people see the headline numbers around investment funds and they think, well, I want to do that for the money. And I think that's wrong because I think um, if you're successful in just about any professional career, you know, there, there's a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. And so the thing driving it should really be interest and your ability to do this thing day in and day out over long periods of time and be you know, intellectually engaged in that thing. Yeah. No, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think a common thing that's happened and, you know, something I, I found myself doing early in my career is you fall in love with the idea of something instead of the actuality of what that is day to day. And I mean, I think the key to finding what you like is thinking about something, the actual day to day mechanics, the process of what you want to be doing day in and day out and how you want to structure your life and what you want to be thinking about, not just if you're going to look good in a suit and have a fancy job and get nice dinners. You know, it's uh, you need to think about the actual, the, the nuts and bolts of the work, which is, I've, I mean, it's hard to do when you're 20 years old. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, I don't think you have to decide when you're 20. I, mean, I think, you know, out of college, you can try a bunch of different stuff. You know, there's no rule. I mean, one of the great things about an MBA is the nature of the MBA, for instance, is that you go have a couple of different jobs before you get an MBA not pushing an MBA, but, but the point is if you just graduated from university in the 23 or whatever the age is and, and you go take a job and you hate it, that's fine. You know, try something different, but there are no rules. And, and I, I think by and large, you know, it's not even until your late thirties and forties where most people start to have really moved up inside of companies and have found their niche. So I don't think as a young person, you need to feel this pressure to know at the beginning. I think, I think what you should do though is just kind of follow your your kind of intuitions about the big themes of your life. You know, you enjoy reading. You don't like working with people. You like working with people. Um, you know, you don't really want to be the boss. You want someone to tell you what to do, or you want to be like. I think there are these general things that you just know about yourself, your personality, that can help guide you. But but um, oftentimes, actually doing something is going to be where you figure out if that's what you want to do. Yeah. So let's, when, let's place us, when were you at Firebird and how old were you then? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I was in my twenties. I, I would have been like kind of 27, 26, 27-ish. I don't know, somewhere in that range. Yeah. And you're living in New York. And so what's your job actually look like there working at, at one of these funds? Are you 
at a computer. Oh, like, I, was, I was I was inc- I was incredibly fortunate, and and you know, dentists count luck in the sense like I had the most amazing job. You yeah. Know, um, James as as the really the portfolio manager and owner of the fu- there are different funds there. He was the owner or the primary owner of the funds I worked in. Um, you know, he had this construct around how he looked at investing and and um so I, I kind of didn't have the pressure of having to do that because like that was really his job, he was boss. And um, you know, we I helped execute those trades and it and it looked like a lot of different things. You know, it looked like flying to Mongolia to work on a share purchase agreement. It looked like doing research on um a given market or sitting on a board and so you know, I was incredibly fortunate, but um, to have fallen into that position. Uh, but you know, I, I traveled uh, through Africa, Australia, Asia, really executing, uh, you know, helping to execute really uh, the investment strategy at the time. And uh, it was it was really unique opportunity because I got to see a very wide range of things and participate in a wide range of financings. You know, from um, convertible notes to equity offerings to private public companies sitting on boards and so it was a really really wide range of experiences which by the way for me kept it interesting you know you never kind of knew uh, would you be going to Russia today or are we going to Rwanda or are we going to Australia so um, the travel schedule was heavy but it was incredibly fascinating time. And so you're going into all these emerging markets, you're going into all these, you know, foreign jurisdictions, something I've thought a lot about. And, you know, I've, I've wondered how other people approach this is, you know, how do you, how do you define a market? How do you identify the right time to enter? Uh, what are things you look for? Cause there's tough uh, and it's an opportunity. And then there's so tough that it's impossible. So where do you draw that line between, all right, this is the time to get in before everyone else. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe we need to wait for a few years. I think the answer is it depends on where your portfolio is at and what you're doing inside of the fund at the time. And, you know, and it also depends on the broader market cycle, right? So, you know, for instance, today, I think I'll just talk about today because it's an example yeah, I think it's a very challenging market because um, we're late cycle. I don't know what that means, but it feels like we're late cycle. I don't know how late. And then you have all this headline risk because of U.S. politics. And so, you know, for me, if I think about asset allocation, you know, being in more liquid investments, you know, there's value in liquidity for me at this moment, right? Versus a private equity style investment where, um, you know, you're in this private deal, there's no liquidity, and you might be there for five years. Well, if we're late cycle, and the cycle turns over in two years, and there's a five-year investment, you, know, you may need to be exiting that particular investment or, or, or getting more capital for that investment at the bottom of the cycle. And so, you know, I think it's a very complicated question to, to ask, because you know, there are the specifics of, of a commodity or of an investment thesis, right, that are unique to that um, thesis. Like, for instance, take helium. Helium on its own, I think, is incredibly interesting, although I don't see any particular interesting way to play, right? But if you go into a private helium deal right now, just by way of example, and the whole world turns over, well, that private helium deal is going to need to continue to raise capital, which means there's probably going to be a down round. So, so yeah, so there's kind of multiple levels to how you're thinking about it. So there's not only just the actual underlying thesis, but then there's also kind of what's going on with where we're at in the macro cycle or your best guess of where we're at because that will have a huge impact on when you're able to get liquid. And that's, by the way, why private equity funds are kind of 10 years plus two years. So you have a 12-year window to get in and out. And that's why, you know, a lot of hedge funds who uh, have – quarterly, monthly, you know, semi-annually redemptions are more focused on on the big liquid names like the Glencores and the Rios. And, and, and this is a complete side note, but I think one of the reasons why juniors are suffering today in the mining space is because there's not the audience that there was even a decade ago because a lot of the funds that invested in the junior mining stocks no longer exist or they don't exist in the form that they once did, RAB Capital being an example. And so on the one hand, it's not a private deal where the PE fund 
and the management team, by the way, get paid differently, but, but over 10 or 12 years, so it's one route. Or it's not a big liquid name, and it's somewhere in between, and so it's kind of tough to get escape velocity to make it into being a larger company. And so as a complete aside to your question, one of the reasons why I think a lot of the smaller mid-cap names struggle today and don't have the liquidity and, and, and face a lot of headwinds is simply because that capital pool that, that was there historically isn't there today, whether it be the actual fund like Rab Capital or mm-hmm. whether it be an allocation within a larger hedge fund today. And the reason so, why a lot of the hedge funds that were there aren't there today is because you know when the world blew up, liquidity was their main you know, liquidity was a huge problem, right? Because they had redemptions and they had to sell assets. It's one thing if you sell Rio Tinto stock, if you're selling, if you have five million dollars of a stock that trades a hundred thousand dollars a day, and everyone's got to exit at the same time, there's huge problems. Right. So, I mean, how do you? How do you see the juniors and the the mid tiers in this space addressing this problem? This sort of this lack of capital that's coming into, especially the earlier stage exploration side of the market. I mean, we all know we need exploration uh, at some point. We need to find new deposits. We need to replenish uh, commodities. But if they're not able to finance this sort of work, where where do they start looking, or how do you see that turning out? Well, first of all, I think we need to break up the market instead of painting it with one brush. And so, like, let's talk about gold first. And, you know, first of all, just because it always was one way doesn't mean it's always going to be the same way in the future. Like, that's a fallacy. You know, like, just because it has been like this up to one point doesn't mean it's going to be like that going forward. And the question I have in my mind about gold is does cryptocurrency undermine gold? And I don't, I don't have an answer. I don't even, I don't even have a view, but. You know, if you think about it, in the global financial crisis, that was the moment when gold should have went to twenty thousand or whatever the number is, right? But it didn't, and all the liquidity because it wasn't big enough, it wasn't liquid enough, and all the liquidity went into the U.S. dollar. But that was the moment when it should have all happened, and it didn't really happen. Now, you know, get a gold guy on here and I'll tell you I'm wrong. That's fine, but from my perspective, it didn't really happen in the way that it could have or should have happened. And so, with the advent of cryptocurrency. And with all the innovation and development going on in cryptocurrency, you know, do we lose interest in gold? And, I, and I, what I can tell you anecdotally is a lot of fund managers I know who are really focused on gold have now taken a portion, in some cases a material portion of their book, and directed it into cryptocurrencies. And you know, I think that is a very big moment for gold. And let's see if it's sustained. But the question in my mind is, is has there been a paradigm shift here? And if there has, then the main source of capital for gold is going to be other gold companies, which we've seen, and it's going to be streaming and royalty companies. So I think I think with gold, you have potentially a paradigm shift, and I don't know if it's happened or if I'm wrong, but I think we've got to have that conversation. Um, in terms of the base metals, you know, like copper, nickel, you know, but copper in particular, the longer we go without making those new discoveries, I just think the, the stronger the bull market in the future. So, you know, and we could go down through different commodities. Um, things shift over time. You know, while coal is never going to go away, yeah, I don't think people need to go out and explore for coal anymore. So I think, I think you're going to have uh, different drivers for different groups of commodities. So take, by the way, take, by the way, um, we'll call them electric metals, but you know, out of obscurity, lithium, certain types of nickel and cobalt all of a sudden have become commodities du jour because a new a new demand has manifested itself. And I mean, that kind of leads us ahead a little bit, but I think we should jump there now is, you know, you were one of the people that recognized the coming demand for cobalt. And that led to the birth of the company that you are now CEO and chairman of Cobalt 27. Uh, and now Cobalt 27 owns what they own physical you own physical cobalt as well as cobalt royalties and streams yeah we have three approximately three thousand metric tons of cobalt making it one of the larger positions in the world maybe after after the chinese government and then we have a, a cobalt stream over voises bay and we have a nickel cobalt stream um over ramu nickel and then you know we have a handful of of nickel cobalt royalties so uh, look, I think 
the creation of this, this kind of comes back to this framework that we talked about earlier. The first one was having a view, right? Like my view was that the electric car, the technology, the pricing, um, it was going to happen. And, and that grid storage, which is hardly talked about at all yet, is going to be a major driver. Um, you know, I looked at cobalt as being a key, one of the key ingredients for this um, kind of really complete disruption and transformation of the automobile industry um, and also transportation more broadly. And so I wanted to play it and there was not really any specific way to play cobalt. You know, there, cobalt being a byproduct of, of nickel and copper and Congo, um, you know, you buy a nickel mine or uh, you buy a, a copper mine. And so, you know, I kind of decided that we were ahead enough of, of the curve. That we had time to put that vehicle together and um, create that proxy for the adoption of electric vehicles and the role of grid storage. And we also had to come up with a model, right? Because you're not going to have a cobalt mine. You're going to have a nickel mine. You're going to have a copper mine. So, you know, we bought the physical um, and, and then decided that we could grow by adding in what I think is one of the great business models, which is streaming and streaming and royalty. So we, could, we decided that we could only buy so much physical and the way to kind of move it past that was to layer and streams and royalty. So we kind of went through that framework. Also, you know, the macro overlay at the time, incredibly bullish, you know, the stocks just meaning the broader market, you know, continues to rise. So you can raise capital for the idea. Um, so, you know, kind of the stars aligned to create that vehicle you know, really create that proxy for EV adoption and, you know, grid storage as well. Do, do, where do you see cobalt going over the next several years? So we've seen a, a fairly sharp price decrease over the last few months. Um, do you think cobalt was previously overvalued or, and this is a correction or is, is this a scare of some sort? How do you interpret that? Yeah, you know, I think people don't kind of fully appreciate or understand the cobalt market. So you have this strange market where you have an LME quote, but price discovery really happens through Metals Bulletin. So, you know, first of all, you have investors who look at the LME pricing, which can be widely different than the Metals Bulletin pricing. And so you have people on the equities taking direction from uh, a quote that can be completely, I don't want to use manipulated because that implies something illegal, but um, can be effectively manipulated with no volume, right? So mm-hmm. so you have people watching that because that's what you get That's what you get on Bloomberg, right? Like you get the LMB quote on Bloomberg, you don't get the metals bulletin quote unless you pay. So right off the bat, like the, there's this kind of unnatural volatility in people's minds because they're watching the wrong quote. I think that's really important. Um, the second thing is the metals bulletin quote has come off, but hasn't come off nearly as as uh, quickly and nearly as sharply as um, I think the market thinks because the market's watching the LME quote. The other point here is, um, you know, the, the the factors actually driving that decline I think are twofold. One is really um, credit in China, you know. Um, as with copper, which is down, and other commodities, people destocked, right? Like the whole trade war thing, it changes credit in China, and yep. people don't carry the same stocks, right? So I think that's part of it. You have a pretty significant amount of material which has come out of the Congo. It's artisanal, illegal material, and uh, that material gets processed and and. Uh, maybe it does or doesn't make its way back into the West, but it still impacts the market. So I think that you kind of have this perfect storm uh, around these kind of factors. Now, is Cobalt 27 in particular, is is your share price very much linked to the price of Cobalt? And is there any way from your perspective? Absolutely. Absolutely. it, It is very linked. Like if you overlay... If you had a Bloomberg terminal and you overlay our share price and cobalt, like you can, you can I mean, it's not perfect, but it's it's a proxy, right? It's a it's yeah. a leverage plan cobalt. I do think at some moment, you know, we'll decouple because as 
as as Ramu begins to cash flow, as Valet comes online, you, you start to become a, a stock which trades on a multiple of free cash flow or multiple of EBITDA. So I, I do think that that decoupling happens. But you know, up until this point, we really traded uh, around the vol- volatility linked to cobalt price, which which uh, to be fair was you know kind of the intention initially yeah. we set it up. And now, now we've kind of moved past those early days and are really focused on. Uh, well, actually, we have made the transition to being a streaming and royalty company, and and you know, are any I, of I your streams and royalties are they paying yet, or is that in the future? Not, not yet. So Ramu hasn't closed. Ramu closes this fall, and that will be paying us immediately. And you know, Voices Bay will will sort of be you know a couple year a couple years out. But Valley's your counterparty, so you feel good about that. So I think I think that transition hopefully starts to happen when the cash flow comes in. Okay. Now, I just on the Cobalt note one more time, and I I just like to dig into this a little bit deeper. But the fact that Cobalt is a a byproduct of nickel and copper mines, and what that means for the industry, and and one how it makes it very uniquely suited to being a streaming or being a streaming or a royalty company. And two, you know, the effects that has on the market because, uh, you know, not really having the ability to mine this directly makes it very different than most other commodities. Yeah, so, I mean, it's the, sort of the ideal commodity to stream. You know, anytime a commodity is a byproduct, it, it's ideal because really it's a, it's a cost line yeah. for whatever the primary product is. And traditionally, and, we've seen this in silver is one of the most popular Exactly. That's exactly right. And so it's very similar. I mean, to, you know, intellectually, it's the same thing, right? It's the exact same idea. Um, with with cobalt, no different. Um, you know, with nickel price coming off, you know, the cobalt and cobalt coming off here a little bit, it puts more pressure on the nickel producers. But you know, it's great for any producer to monetize that cobalt exposure. Because they can take those funds, which they're probably not getting credit for, and then expand their mine or do you know, do whatever it is that they need to do, right? So, it's 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 an ideal commodity to approach a producer about and try to have a conversation around whether or not they want to stream it, because you know they're nickel miners or they're copper miners, and this is a fraction of their overall revenue. So, it's um, it's an easier conversation to have than to go to a gold company and try to stream gold. Yeah. So, all right. But, but, most of, but, but you asked specifically, I mean, you know, I'm aware of only a single primary cobalt mine in the world, uh, and that's in Morocco, and it's run by Managem. I think, okay. you know, most of these stories out there in the market are still ultimately silver stories or gold stories. Or, you know, I think, you know, maybe at this exact moment, the copper, the cobalt price is high enough that um, that they're able to kind of change the numbers to make it look as if that's going to be a primary mm-hmm. cobalt mine. But I think, I think in the long run, uh, I'm going to be surprised if there are a bunch of new primary, primary cobalt mines in the world, save it for artisanal in, in the Congo and, and maybe if management expands. So are you guys the only pure cobalt play in the world right now? I'm thinking I, I'm not aware of anyone else. I, you know, yeah, I mean, there are exploration and development plays in North America, but but they're all something else as well. So I, I would say I think we are. Ah, so all right. And I mean, with your price slightly down now, this is an interesting time for for investors to look at Cobalt Twenty Seven. Um, yeah, no, look. I mean, if you're an investor, like we're trading at, uh, you know, we're, even with the lower Cobalt price, I think we're trading at you know, point six times PNAV or something like that. So. You know, especially if someone has a, an optimistic view of the cobalt price, you know, it's an amazing time to buy. But this, so this is only one of your jobs. So you're the chairman and the CEO of Cobalt 27, but you're also a managing director at Pala Investments now. Is that correct? That's correct. I I, um, I would say that, that the majority of my time today is, you know, kind of like all of it is basically spent on Cobalt 27. Um Simply because it's just become, um, you know, there's not enough hours in the day, right? Um, small team, and it's just sort of overwhelming in terms of the amount of stuff that has to get done. 
Yep. But Pala is still one of the biggest shareholders, if I'm if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think Paula is one of the top two shareholders. Okay. So are you, um, you know, I'm cognizant that you've been looking for these thematic plays that, you know, you're identifying an opportunity before other people have the chance to. Are there, have there been commodities or themes that you've gone after before that, that haven't worked out the way you wanted, that things shifted and it, and it kind of fell apart and you decided to pull the plug? Yeah, I think, you know, I think um, when I was at Fiber, one of the ones that, that we probably didn't get right was Floor Spar. Um, okay. Can you yeah. explain what Floor Spar is and, and what it's used for for our, for our listeners? Sure, it's CAF2, um, and it's primarily used as a refrigerant, but, you know, it has applications in, you know, there's Acid Spar and there's Red Spar and there's applications in different you know, alloying and that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, we had a view on price and on on demand and, and, and how it was going to unfold. And, you know, initially the trade was right. I mean, there's this moment where flush bar prices spiked massively and um, they rolled over very quickly and you know, part of that was driven by regulatory changes. Part of it was driven by um, a tremendous amount of supply in, in Mexico. Um, you know, so there are there are a number of factors. Um, I think also the macro kind of factors um, for refrigerants just changed, and so uh, you know, it, it worked initially, but in the long run, the strategy didn't work. So. You know, you can have a couple of those factors, right, that I was telling you about. You know, like you can have um, the view, you can have the assets, but if you get one of them wrong, the whole thing can fall over. So, you know, when you're thinking about these thematic investments, you can't just get one right. Like uh, I'm quite convinced helium is, is like, really interesting, but, but there's no way – I can't see any obvious way to play it, right? So um, I don't know how you can get the rest of it right. Or, or I think like – space right like all these shuttle launches all all this stuff that's going on there there are particular materials which will benefit from that but sitting here like i'm not i'm not talking about mine space mine is something different i'm talking about actually um all the number of rockets being shot into outer space so i, I can mm-hmm. kind of see that happening you can see the trend if you read about it but i'm, I'm not quite sure i'm not sure how you play that right so you know another one is automation right and, and robotics like you can see the trend, but, but I don't think it impacts any particular metal enough to put the trade on. So it's not, it's, 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 it's multiple things, right? It's identifying it, but then and it's executing it, but, but between identifying it and executing it, you also have to have, to have another uh, kind of set of steps. And when I look at cobalt, you know, we debated at length, you know, whether or not we had those middle steps in particular, like, could you get a vehicle of scale? Could you could you um, source the physical position? Would people actually enter into streaming contracts with you? And and just just to kind of show you the workaround there, you know, almost I can't think of a single example of a streaming company that was founded off the back of of a of a little like a right of first refusal, raising blind billion money in the market. Like no no producer will let you do that. So for us to do that, we had to first buy the physical position, create the balance sheet, and then go do the stream. So so I think, you know, identifying it is a critical, like you know, in the end yeah. of the day, it's all about the idea. Execution is critical, but between those two points, you have to get the balance of it right. Otherwise, um, otherwise the trade is just doesn't work. And so how long does the preparatory and the research period last for something like that? Like were you looking at Cobalt for years prior to to going? Uh, ahead with Cobalt 27 or months? What was the sort of timeline to put that all together? So, so I mean, the first, I mean, the first time I ever read about Cobalt was in like, you know, in 2008, but, but I had no, uh, you know, I just had read about it. So I think often these things come and go at different times. So I would say that there was prior to the IPO, a good 12 or 18 months of preparation um, that went into it. But, you know, these things can kind of, Slosh around in my head for a long period of time. I mean, like I 
really think that space is going to be transformational in terms of um, certain commodities over the next decades. But I don't know how, I don't know why, I don't know what, right? So, but I started to think about it and maybe in seven years, there'll be some trade that will like come and it'll manifest itself, it'll be time to go. So it's not linear, right? Like on the one hand, um, I read about Kowal for the first time in detail in 2008, but it, you know, kind of prior to the IPO, maybe it was 18 months. So right. you're kind of always reading and thinking about things, but you know, I think when when the trade is when it's time to put the trade on, it depends on what you're going to do because you know it's not always the case that you have to create a vehicle. Um, if if you took a view right now today that copper was going to go and it was going to go in the next few months for this reason or that reason, I mean, just go out and buy some equities. Like that's easy or gold, right? You can just go buy equities. So yep. I think it probably it probably depends. But what I would say is is oftentimes there's more alpha in more esoteric trades. Now it takes more yeah. finesse in an esoteric trade because often liquidity is the issue. Um, yeah. A, as opposed to copper, where copper is infinitely liquid, right? Like you can do whatever you want in copper, but you also are trading against everyone else on earth as well, right? So, you know, are you any smarter than the next man or woman? I don't know. But, you know, if you, um, you know, maybe you take a view on scandium. You know, people laugh when they hear the name Scandium. Maybe, you know, maybe, but maybe you have this whole idea and you put it together and and um, the upside can be tremendous. But the other thing I would caution about these esoteric trades or it's worth thinking about is, is the scale of money you can deploy. So it's another mm-hmm. factor here, which is when, you, when you're looking at um, copper, I mean, you could put, I don't know, as much as you put 100 million, 500 million, you could put huge amounts of money into copper. But if you picked, just to be silly, you pick scandium, I don't know how much money you could even invest in scandium. I don't, I don't even know what that market is. I, I suspect you could go to a stream or something. But um, so, so there, there are all these kind of competing things. You know, if, if, if you're running a huge amount of money, then sometimes you have to steer clear of some of these esoteric trades because the amount you can allocate doesn't move the needle. And you have to kind of stay within the main. But if if the amount of capital is smaller, you know sometimes you're able to to really find alpha in these opportunities. Right. So, you know, this brings me to my next question. So, those are challenges for for money managers. But if you're an investor at home, you've you know saved a decent amount of personal capital. You're interested at looking at some of these more esoteric trades and areas where you can get a lot of bang for your buck outside of just gold and copper, do you have any advice for how you would approach these problems, where you would look, who you would talk to, just how you can even become made aware of this, these sort of opportunities with, if this isn't your full-time job, if you're a, a dentist in Missouri that's decided to dabble in the mining and metal space? I think, I think um, on a practical level, you would have to just find management teams you trusted, right? Like I think you would have to, you, you know, you would have to, Find management teams, but I do think even as a as a, a retail investor that you need to be aware of these things because, you know, if if you just to pick on a commodity, you know, if if I just founded a scandium company and I have a ten million dollar market cap, you know, in order to get from ten million to two hundred million, for instance, like, is there an incremental buyer for that stock to get there? So I do think you need to be aware of of scale and some of these other issues and. And by the way, like as I noted earlier, it's a really major problem getting from the 20, 40, 50 million to seven, 800 million because, you know, there's retail still exists and big funds still exist, but the guys who dabble in between, it's more limited today. And so even if you're a, a private investor, I, I think it would serve you, it would serve you well to still understand the bigger market dynamics because that will impact whether or not you make money on your $20,000 stock purchase. You know? So I think, I think you still need to be aware. But specifically to answer your question, if you don't have the time, you're the dentist in Missouri, as you say, I think you know, following individuals is important you know, because most, most executives in a small public company will take a call with 
someone who owns $5,000 of shares, you know, they won't take a call every day, but they'll take the call from time to time. And yep. so I think, you know, a likely, a likely way to be successful in addition to like educating yourself through reading and getting access to the material that you can, I think is to find management teams that you trust and like. Yeah. And I mean, we've spoken about this a lot on this podcast that, you know, how, um, how management teams treat shareholders in that situation. If they're not willing to chat with you for 10 minutes at a conference, or they don't have someone who will pick up the phone and answer your questions, you know, they're probably not respecting your money anymore. And I mean, this is for the average. I push back on that. I mean, like if you're running, if you're running a company, okay, yes. you only have so many hours in the day. And and while you need to respect everyone, if someone owns a thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or ten million dollars, um, on a practical level, you can't take a hundred calls a day from a hundred guys owning a thousand dollars of stock. Like, but as like, these companies grow, don't they typically have people in place, investor relations people that can reply? Yeah, to no, no, for sure. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Like, absolutely. I mean, I'm not proposing absolutely. that the CEO of every company needs to spend their time talking to every shareholder, but. There should be someone whose role in that company is to engage with, with these these shareholders. You know, that's that, there's no question about that. I, I thought you meant the CEOs of these companies, but yeah, there's no, no. question. And by the way, the CEO, I think, I think most CEOs go to PDAC and stand at the booth, and you know, I know I personally take calls from folks that own a couple thousand dollars of, of of shares from time to time. So I don't think you do that every day, all day, because your time is better spent doing other things. But um, I would say that. It, you know, any serious company would have a function, an IR function that would be addressing this because it's an important part of being public and I agree respecting people's capital. Mm-hmm. Is there any advice you'd have for new investors in the space that are maybe looking to get their feet wet in the mining and metals industry in general, whether they should be focused on the 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 stalwart commodities of gold and copper and nickel or should they be looking at these more esoteric things like cobalt or or lithium that are very very hot right now and have a lot of future potential how would you how would you advise someone who has a little bit of capital they want to play with and just wants to get started learning about this this arena you know it's kind of lame advice but stick with what you know i mean if if um if you're interested in gold and you kind of follow it, I mean, I think you need to have a passing interest, even, even when it's your own money. Um, you know, for instance, it's, you know, once upon a time I bought a bunch of, in the global financial crisis, I bought a bunch of McDonald's stock because I'm like, you know what? I've got kids and they love to go to McDonald's. I don't think McDonald's, <laughs> I don't know anything about McDonald's, right? Except that I, I just kind of didn't think that McDonald's was going out of it. It's not, you know, it's not totally rational. Okay. As a professional investor, I bought this my own money. I just um, said, like, McDonald's ain't going anywhere, and my kids love it, and so you know, you know, so, and and that's a little harder with, um, with, uh, you know, with commodities, but I do think we are all attached to them, and if you live in a, a coal mining town, and the coal mines are shutting down, like, well, do you want to go along coal? I mean, I know there's a, a trade there, a pro trade around it, but but I don't know if that's you know, so I would say. And maybe you're, you know, not um, interested in electric vehicles, but if you're interested in electric vehicles, for instance, and you have a Tesla, well, it's easy for you to think about graphite or lithium or cobalt or copper. So I, I would, I would still try to make it personal, so that, so that you still have enough interest that you're reading about it um, in your day to day and following it. You don't have to do that, but I think it's easier to do that. Yeah, I think that's very good advice. And it's it sounds a lot like what you've done is allowing these these seeds to plant in the back of your head and germinate and really almost subconsciously keeping an eye out for them over the years and seeing how you can take advantage of these things. And if you're and not- one big thing, Alex, is, is, is don't chase promotes, man. Like, don't, don't, don't get into these greater full things where they're jamming millions of dollars into like, into like taking a stock, you know, from- I don't know how it works in Vancouver, right? You're based there, but you know, you know, like I mean, like you might get lucky, but 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 probably it's a mugs game. So I would I would buy things that you actually think are interesting and have a future, or, or you know, I, I would I would buy them on some basis other than like the promote. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Um, 
if listeners wanted to learn more about you personally or about Cobalt 27, where should they have a look for that? So cobalt27.com is the website. There's a bio there and uh, then I'm also on LinkedIn. Good. Uh, and do you have any requests for the people listening to this, things to check out, any advice for, yeah, for no, signing? Look, I, I think, you know, I think that, um, I think that the world economy is actually strong and that the macro um, distortion from headline risk will fade. And, and, you know, look at these themes. I mean, find themes that you're interested in, you know, look at the electric vehicle theme, you know, it's transforming transportation. Don't buy cobalt, don't buy lithium, buy copper, maybe. I don't know, you know, but, you know, know, there's a lot of ways to play this, you know, think about space, what's happening there. Are there ways to play, you know, think about, there are tremendous changes underway on this earth, you know, it's environmental concerns and, and, and new technologies. And I would say if you want to invest in the space, find one of those things that you're interested in, um, whatever it might be. There's a lot of them. And uh, use that as your basis and guide for finding basic materials that will benefit from whatever that change is. That would be my advice. Great. Anthony, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Thanks a lot, bud. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.